Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for this episode is Greg Daly. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thanks, Rachel. It's lovely to have you back, even though we've been having some technical difficulties. So fingers crossed this all works out fine. Obviously, the the thrills of the internet still abound. It's always quite the adventure. I was saying that I've been recording things for work and it's really hit and miss how the audio comes out. So I'm I'm getting some experience with all of the noise reduction software on the editing software. So um, it's been, uh, I'm definitely definitely honing my skills for the future. Let's hope they work. <laughs> Let's hope this <laughs> And it is fantastic to have you back on. I think it's fun. Last time you were here, we were discussing one section of history. We were talking about Vermeer. And now we're shifting to a completely different part of history. But we're still talking about how faith and Christian morals and perspective can exist in a world that's oppressing its particular beliefs. And so I think the topic that you've chosen for today is such a such an interesting one it's really cool and it was something that I knew a little bit about but not that much so we're we're going to be talking about Sophie Scholl and the white rose resistance movement during Nazi Germany yeah something i think people tend not to know that much about in in Ireland or Britain she's she's a person and they're a group who are household names in Germany nowadays and Basically, we'd all be better off if they were household names further afield. But yeah, as it stands, they're still mostly German things. So it's definitely worth getting getting the word out somehow. Definitely. I was really surprised when I read that she was voted the most famous woman in German history. Because like I said, I had heard of her, but it's like, you know, I've heard of lots of people in history. I don't necessarily realise that they're kind of at the peak of familiarity in their own countries. Yeah, no, I think that's true. There there are countless schools and streets named after her across Germany. Well, not countless, probably about 200 last time I, I saw. But um, it's a lot. And yeah, you had this German magazine called Brigitte back in 1999 had named her woman of the 20th century. And then a German TV station in 2003 did a poll of kind of the greatest Germans ever. And um, she was the highest ranked German woman on that list. And then a couple of years after that, in 2005, a film about her final days, Sophie Scholl, The Last Days, became like a huge box office hit in Germany. So she's well known there, certainly. Yeah, and I, I watched that film for this episode and it's it's a fantastic film. I guess I think the thing that's so appealing about her is she's sort of a very bright spot in what otherwise was a very dark time. She's really someone that you can look to in a, in an era that you would be kind of horrified by and say, wow, there was still goodness shining through. There was courage and bravery and conviction and conscience shining through in, in her and, and, and that whole group of people in the White Rose movement. So I guess maybe like if you want to give a, a rundown of who she was, what she did, and maybe even like what made you kind of become interested in her. Okay, well, I, I heard about her for the very first time you know, about, about 12, 13 years ago, when Clive James had done a, a book which called Cultural Amnesia, which was meant to be kind of the, the fruits of basically a lifetime of reading and lifetime of taking notes and margins of books and writing down, them down in notebooks and stuff like that. And it was advertised online on like in with the Times website in England with three short films where he was just reading from the book. And the first one of these involved Sigmund Freud, Louis Armstrong and Sophie Shaw. So obviously two of them I'd heard a lot about and one I most certainly hadn't. 
And he had a quote from her, which is, finally, someone has to make a start. We only said and wrote what many people think. They just don't dare to express it. Cultural Amnesia is this like book of 100 different essays, um, all about different 20th century figures and how they kind of point towards basically who we are at our best, really. And it's striking that when he, at the start of the book, he dedicates it. And one of them, a young German girl who was killed at the age of 21, for being involved in anti-Nazi resistance. He talks about her brother and basically, okay, so the, the short way of doing it is to say that there was a small group of students in Munich uh, during World War II who went from being kind of model Nazis, basically, to realizing that the regime that they lived in was a monstrosity and doing what they could, and it wasn't a lot, but it was impressive given the circumstances, doing what they could to protest against this regime. And eventually they were all caught and all executed. They're all kind of moral paragons in their way. It's really quite remarkable. But as Clive James puts it in, in his book, he says, if moral integrity can be conceived of as a competition, he says, Sophie leaves even her brother Hans behind. Because what was striking about Sophie at the very end is that everybody else was going to be executed. Sophie, they kind of thought, oh, she's this foolish young girl. You know, she's been led astray. And they basically said, just say you were led astray and you won't be executed. And she refused. She said, no, we just we just did what lots of people are thinking. And somebody has to make a start. So she she went to the guillotine. The executioner who, who killed her that day, he later said that he had never seen anybody go so unflinchingly to their death. And he's a man who certainly had um, a track record in this. He'd been, he'd been an executioner during the Weimar period, went on being it during uh, the Nazi period, and eventually ended up working for the Allies in the war crime trials in the late 40s. So you kind of get the impression that a long and kind of bloody career, basically. He was just astounded by just how brave she was. And that's kind of in a nutshell who they were. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. And it's so, like you said, it, they're such a fascinating group because they're kind of like an, an oddball set of people who have all come together at the same time in the same place in doing similar things. And they they have this kind of virtue showing through. It is a testament to the fact that, and like like you were saying, that famous quote that like many people were thinking this, that they can't have been the only ones that felt this way and thought this way, but they were one of the few people who were brave enough to do something about it. Yeah, no, I think that, that's definitely true. I mean, Germany is not absolutely without resistance groups to the Nazis, but most of the resistance there was, and it was all pretty small scale because they were very effective. The first things the Nazis did more or less when they were setting up camps was, was Dachau, which is you know, that's the camp effectively for people who looked like opponents of the regime. That's where the trade unionists were and the socialists and actually priests went there as well. But it was people who were going to be opponents in one sense or another. And most of the opponents of the Nazi regime were from the left one way or another. Whereas what you see with Sophie and Hans Scholl and their circle is a group of young, very well-educated middle-class Germans who are pretty much models for what the Nazis wanted people to be. You know, you, you may remember, obviously, that when Pope Benedict back in the day got quite a lot of flack for having been in the Hitler Youth when he was a child. Well, first of all, he was a child. And secondly, he was only nominally a member and he enrolled at a point when it was illegal not to. 
the shawls weren't like that. They didn't wait till it was kind of popular. They they were in there because it was kind of like joining the scouts. Sophie was in the League of German Maidens. Hans was in the Hitler Youth, and they both did very well in it. They were they were kind of models for these kind of like adverts for Aryan youth and what they should be, which makes their repudiation of it all the more kind of remarkable and all the more impressive. I think I want to say their gradual their gradual moral awakening. That's perhaps overstating it. They never come across as particularly kind of murderous or anything like that. But um, <laughs> there's certainly a thing where as they're growing into their teens and like it's by their mid-teens really, they're thinking there's something not right about this. 1935 is a key year in this actually, where you have Hans is at the Nuremberg rally that year, and he didn't like it. He found it kind of stifling that it was it would crushed people's individuality. And Sophie, meanwhile, had a problem at a it was kind of like a camp weekend or something like that for the the, the League of German Maidens, where she had wanted to read from the poems of Heinrich Heine, whose poems, because he was a Jewish writer, had been banned two years earlier. And her kind of patrol leader or troop leader wouldn't allow this and was was horrified that somebody would want to do that. So, you know, at this time, Sophie was 14, Hans was, Hans was like 16, and they were, they were uneasy at this stage. What's striking about that as well is that their, their parents were most decidedly anti-Nazi. But at the same time, Sophie's father, who would refer to Hitler as being like a Pied Piper, misusing the German people shamefully, Sophie's father nonetheless didn't stop them getting involved in these activities. I, I think he trusted them. He trusted them that they would see through it. Uh, sooner rather than later and he didn't want to as he saw to infringe their freedoms as individuals which of course is what the nazis were doing so he he didn't infringe their freedoms they experienced it from the the various nazi youth groups themselves and it started causing them to kind of cast their eyes around and to think more deeply about what was going on the, the family winds up suffering for their open-mindedness actually in, in by 1936 I think they're 37. The house is raided by the Gestapo and a range of kind of banned materials are confiscated. Two of the children, the eldest and the youngest ones in the, the family, both spent a week in solitary confinement. And a month later, Hans gets arrested. He isn't released till January 1938. So he's in prison for, for quite a while there. When he gets tried, he's acquitted. But it's striking that while he's waiting for the trial outcome, one of the things he does is something that's kind of highly unusual for young Lutherans, where he writes a, a 50 verse or 50 stanza long poem, which probably in itself is unusual enough, but it's dedicated to Our Lady. It's entitled Maria, Our Queen. So you, you start to see that their their religious faith is definitely very important to them. They're raised Lutheran. Their mother, as I said, is a Lutheran minister. But they're both going to, aside from taking it very seriously, they're both going to tilt increasingly towards Catholicism over their short life. To a point where, by at least one account, they were looking to convert just before the executions, where their their chaplain discouraged them from doing so, basically feeling it's going to be too hard for your parents anyway. Don't add this to it, you know, to kind of to leave their church at this stage. So, but whether or not that's the case, you see this kind of profound moral awakening is probably the wrong word, but a, a gradual moral awareness in them and fueled by their, their religious faith as much as anything. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I certainly think it's, it's definitely necessary to stress how important their Lutheran faith was and to not just sort of co-opt it. But I think it is important to pull out the kind of Catholic influences in their lives because they seem to have quite a profound 
impact on their lives in a way that you mightn't expect. It does sort of crop up over and over again. I believe when they left Hitler Youth, Hans certainly joined a young Catholics movement, which were sort of anti-Hitler Youth as far as I could see. But that they seem very comfortable and familiar with having this association with Catholics and Catholicism. Yeah, well, one of their best friends in the group, a guy called Willy Graf, basically when Hans goes off to Munich to study medicine in 1939, he makes quite a lot of important friendships. And Willy is one of them. And Willy is a very, very devout young man. He's probably the kind of person who, if he'd been in Ireland at the time, he'd be like someone like Alfie Lamb or someone like that. That's the kind of figure you can see. I mean, you, you see pictures of him and he looks kind of almost this kind of almost frail and insipid in a way, seriously devout, very, very thoughtful. And he wound up cutting off every friend he knew who joined the Hitler Youth when they were in their teens. If somebody did it, they were out. He just thought that was abominable what was going on. I think there's actually a cause open for him at the moment in the Munich. Yeah, in the Archdiocese of Munich, there is work on at the moment to try and open the, his sainthood cause. So they're all impressive figures that way. One, another one of them, um, Alexander Schmorl, is Orthodox. And he's ranked nowadays as what they call glorified as a passion bearer, which is kind of an Orthodox term that is more or less the same as as a martyr or at least kind of the kind of martyr of love that you see and whether it's Maximilian Kolbe or Oscar Romero or something like that he's kind of ranked at that level so they're they're all religious in their way I mean I, I've read a few books on them at this point and one of them I think the first one I'd read I was kind of disappointed by it was full of detail about them very very kind of I learned a lot but I was disappointed that they talked about religion, they talked about Schmoral orthodoxy, they talked about Willy Graf's Catholicism, and they glossed over the Lutheranism and indeed the, the eventual Catholic influences on Hans and Sophie. They just come out, yeah, they were Christian, and they just kind of skimmed through that. So I kind of had to dig a bit deeper then. It was, it was in the second book that I started seeing more of it. Frank McDonough, who's a professor in Liverpool, did a very good one on that. But it, Essentially, it's, it, it tends to be the, the, the rule on these things that if you really want to find out, you kind of have to go back to the sources. There's a wonderful collection of Hans and Sophie's diaries and letters, which you can read. And it's very clear in that. And then Paul Shrimpton, uh, he did a book there, which is, again, invaluable, called Conscience Before Conformity. And it's, it's Hans and Sophie Schall and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. And he's a Newman scholar who became, he basically he read a few articles about 10 years ago, which highlighted the influence of Newman on their thought. And again, but we'll come to that. But it is striking that Pope Benedict, when he visited England, he was talking about kind of the courage of young people and being willing to stand up and about Newman at the same time. And it looks like as somebody who would have been very, very familiar with them, he's, you know, he's a fellow Bavarian and the same age as them, that he would have basically been deeply steeped in, in knowing about who these people were and the inspiration they can be for, for young people and not so young people today. Yeah, definitely. And you said we were going to come to it. That's the nice thing about reading into the history of the, the shawls is that you have these wonderful letters and you can see all of the areas of life that they're drawing from for inspiration. And uh, I think it was in the article that you wrote about this previously, which was talking about how Sophie and her fiancé Fritz sent each other copies of Newman's sermons. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. It was like it was her gift to him, I think, before he went off to the front at one point. Um, Fritz was in the, the Luftwaffe and was stationed out in the Eastern Front. And yeah, she basically pushes this stuff on him. But you find it in their letters back and forth, you know, well, she encourages him at one point to read The Diary of a Country Priest by Georges Bernal, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, but she encourages him to read that. 
And Hans, at one point, you know, she's writing to him and you find that he's reading the, the kind of new wave of Catholic authors at the time. People like André Gide and François Mauriac. He's also reading Dante. Sophie's reading St. Augustine and kind of adv- urging other people to read St. Augustine as well. So this is very much kind of an engine for them. It kind of is deeply, deeply inspiring. She ta- Sophie talks at one point about feeling sad walking around on a Good Friday by encountering all these laughing people in the streets. And she says... They're, she feels they're divorced from the sky, is the term she used. But sky in this context, the German word Himmel does double duty in this regard. She's saying she's the divorced from heaven, the divorced from the heavens when she said this. So at this point, for what it's worth, it's in the same same extract in her diaries, actually. She says um, she'd very much like to go to church. And at this point, you can see her starting to move away. And again, we can't overstate it, but starting to move away from her Lutheran heritage at that point when she says... Um, I'd very much like to go to church, not the Protestant one where I listen critically to what the preacher says, but the other one where I tolerate everything. I've only to be open and receptive. But is that the right one? So she's not sure, but she's, you know, she is Mm. pondering this and kind of um, reflecting on it one way or another. Yeah. And I suppose then the question is, we should probably talk about exactly how they started resisting and what it was that they did, because what essentially happens is they have this huge wealth of information and wisdom that they've gathered from these books and they start producing leaflets that are incredibly inspirational. And so as far as I know, wasn't it that Hans and his friends began it and then Sophie found out about it and they kind of wanted to protect her, but she she insisted and she forced her way into the group and, and made use of the fact that as a woman, she was less likely to be stopped and searched on the street. And so their resistance was not one of violence, but one of, of words and one of information that they were part of this movement of producing leaflets that they spread around all of Munich. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very much the case. There's a couple of earlier incarnations of it before it becomes that full-on White Rose group. The beginning of it is probably to do with the Bishop of Munster, um, Count Clemens von Gallen, with his, with his sermons. And that's kind of a key turning point because copies of the sermons, these anti-Nazi sermons, are, are spread all across Germany. And basically, it's a network of priests and altar boys who are usually responsible for sharing them. The Shawls get a copy of at least one of them. And it's the the third one, which is the one where he talks about the Nazi policy on euthanasia. The reaction to this is that so the Shawls get a copy of it with the instruction to make six more copies and pass them on. So Hans is hugely impressed by this. And he says, finally, a man has had the courage to speak out. He says this is the first real public act of opposition to the Nazis. And it seems that the duplication of these sermons is triggers the idea in them of using pamphlets for expressing their kind of non-violent opposition to the regime that they they were in. Um, Hans tells Inga, another one of the sisters in the family, we really ought to have a duplicating machine. And the family discussed the, the homily at length, while Sophie, meanwhile, without a duplicating machine, laboriously, privately and individually copies and circulates the sermons. So, you know, they're hugely influenced. But that's kind of the first stage of it, really, is that Bishop von Gallen doing that. That summer, the Shawls and a group of their friends start their own homemade magazine, which they call the Windlamp or the, the Windlicht. And their idea is that, well, we can't really oppose this. This is too big. We're only kids. You know, that's more or less what they're thinking. But we need to make, I don't want to say they're going kind of full Benedict option on this, but they need to make kind of a little cell for themselves where they make something to at least sustain themselves in this context. So they start making their own little homemade magazine on this one. And it's, it's a group of them. It's about a dozen of them all told. 
and they they do book reviews, they copy poems, and they comment on others' articles. And it's a, it's a small and subversive venture intended to kind of bolster these young people who are not happy with the regime. That in turn brings them in contact with other people. One of Hans' friends, uh, Otto Eicher, had been a very devout Catholic, and he's probably the inspiration for Hans's 50-verse poem to Our Lady. Um, he introduces them to other people, and one of them is a guy called Carl Muth. It's all a bit complicated, but you'll see where we're going at it. Carl Muth had been a journalist and a founding editor of another magazine, and who, though he kind of finished, the, the Nazis in fact shut down his own magazine, he developed this kind of circle around him of all sorts of kind of intellectuals and impressive figures one way or another. And it's encountering them that kind of build up the group until they'll become the White Rose. You've essentially got Hans's medicine school friends, um, Willy Graf, I've mentioned, Alexander Schmorl, another one, Christoph Probst. And they eventually, as you say, decide they have to do something. And they will start doing their own leaflets rather than magazines and will share these out, will go out and duplicate them. And they'll, their system is effectively to kind of write them, print them from the printing press. And then they would do things like all of them would go out one day with a batch of them each. And they, they might take trains to cities all around Germany and they'd post them from those cities. So it wasn't obvious where they were coming from. It catches the attention of the Gestapo straight away because, well, there just wasn't any opposition to them. So even this thing, you know, they wondered what it was and they wondered how they could deal with it. There's, it's funny, at one point, before this, they're aware, the, 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 the Scholzner are aware that they were being watched by the Gestapo in some sense. I've got a great quote somewhere, which is in their letters back and forth. Basically, you have Hans writing a letter and basically saying, my handwriting's terrible. I feel really sorry for the Gestapo guy who has to read this, you know, because... Sometimes decode what I'm saying here. And uh, that's the joke there. They know they're being watched to some degree, but nonetheless, they're able to do this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Sophie finds out about it and basically pushes her way into the group. And yeah, she, she becomes very important that way for disseminating it and writing it and so forth. At the same time, you've got them developing kind of culturally and spiritually in their own lives. They're not just these 20-something anti-Nazi machines. You know, there's more to them than that. I mean, they're, they're smart people, without a doubt. You, you, you know this when you look at their reading and what they're seriously doing, but they seem to spend as much time going on hikes together and going on skiing trips and going to Bach concerts as they do doing anything else. There's a, there's a wonderful photograph of them just like horsing around in a park together. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely not fanatics. That's one of the kind of impressive things about it. You know, we usually, the most commonly seen picture of Sophie is probably one where she's talking to her brother, she's talking to, I think it's Christoph, and they're both wearing their German military uniforms because they're, they're serving as medics and they're, they're home for the holidays or something like that. And she looks very serious and very intense. So it's kind of good that we've got pictures of her where she's not like that, where she's just like wearing her summer dress and laughing, just horsing around really. I think that's it's important to bear in mind. She looks surprisingly modern in a lot of the photos. She has like a, a shaved side of her head in one of them and her hair is quite like short. And But I'm amazed to see so many photos of her because you don't see that many for most of history of just laughing, joking, playing. To most of the photos, she looks like she's having a lot of fun. I do like that one of her with her brother in that she you can see in her face kind of all of the things that are going on in her head that you can see it's someone who's thinking about things who's planning things who's not just passively sitting there there is something quite intriguing about that photo as well 
But the point you made about them being sort of culturally interested, I think is so important and so key to kind of understanding them, which is that they loved life and they were willing to sacrifice their lives and stand up for something that is good and right, but that came from a place of not just detesting the world. And in some ways they had every right to detest the world because they were surrounded by Nazis and Gestapo and bombs and the horror of wars. Like you said, her her, um, her brothers and all the sort of men in her life were going to the front in some capacity, usually as medics. And so she's not immune to the reality of what's happening. And yet there's still joy and there's still a real love for life and that their devotion to God comes from the fact that life itself is good. I have a couple of really lovely quotes here. She says, isn't it a riddle and awe-inspiring that everything is so beautiful despite the horror? Lately I've noticed something grand and mysterious peering through my sheer joy in all that is beautiful, a sense of its creator. Only man can be truly ugly because he has the free will to estrange himself from this song of praise. It often seems that he'll manage to drown out this hymn with cannon thunder, curses and blasphemy. But during this past spring, it dawned on me that he won't be able to do this. And so I want to try and throw myself on the side of the victor. And I think that so encapsulates what we're talking about here, which is that she can see all of the horror, but she knows the goodness underneath and she's willing to sacrifice her own good to be on the side of, of Christ. That kind of, I think Chesterton talks about the distinction between the martyr and the suicide at one point. Martyrs are people who are willing to go to their death because of what they love and because they see the goodness there. Whereas, you know, without casting aspersions or anything like that, suicide is defined by despair. Martyrdom is not. It's, a, it's an act of love and they're willing to go to their deaths. They're willing to risk their own lives for the goodness that is in the world and the goodness in the world to come, but certainly the goodness in the world around them. They, they know loving people. They know good people. They see such beauty in nature, in art, in music, and in religious worship. They see so much goodness out there that they see this as worth standing up for. And mm-hmm. I mean, they pay the price for it. And, you know, we, we might wonder what they could have offered the world if they'd lived. But in their yeah. short lives, they did something more impressive than most of us will do in much longer lives. So, In her, I think it's the, the final words that we have recorded of her speaking. I think it, it's reputed from a, a fellow female prisoner when she was being led away. And we will get to how they got caught and, and, and were executed in a minute. But it begins with a very powerful sentiment, which is, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? And then she goes on to say, such a fine, sunny day, and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Like, I just love that sentence that, like, not only is her family and the people that she loves, but the fact that it's a fine, sunny day is reason enough to stay, you know, but also important enough to give yourself up for the two sides of the one coin. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. It's, it's one of the things that makes her such an, and Hans as well, but especially her such a kind of an attractive individual. I mean, even if you park Clive James' points about moral integrity as a competition, because that could lend you down the road of thinking of them as kind of young fanatics. No, she's, she's somebody, as you say, who loves life, who loves the world around her. And she's got every reason to live. And, and that makes it all the more compelling that in the end, she'd rather kind of do what she knows to be true, do what she believes to be right. 
Yeah, and I think it was really key. We were discussing this a little bit before we started. When I was reading it, it really reminded me of St. John Paul II and his experience during the war, which kind of forms a sort of parallel to this. And the book I was reading, which brought this to mind was, is it St. John Paul, His Five Loves, I think it is. And so it's a book which gives a kind of overview of his life at the start and then breaks down the main passions of his life in terms of the work that he did. So it was the Eucharist and Eucharistic Adoration and um, Young People was another one. But when I was reading it, it, it gave quite a lot of information about his time during the war. It says that he essentially, I think, founded or joined a Polish theatre group called the the Rhapsody Theatre, where they in secret performed the great works of Polish theatre. So yeah, it says, along with his friends, the theatre became a wellspring and an expression of hope for Wojtyla. Together with a number of friends, Carol defied the Germans and formed an underground theatrical organisation called the Rhapsody Theatre. Because the Nazis forbade such secret societies, the clandestine group met in various basements, apartments and houses, risking deportation and death if they were caught. It's natural to wonder why anyone would risk death in order to perform plays during a world war. At best, it seemed to be a dangerous method of distracting oneself from the unchangeable and painful realities of life. But for the Poles, their dramas were an expression of their destiny. And then it goes on to explain how, because Poland, as a country with many changing borders and forces in it, saw its culture as as being integral to its identity. But I just love that he's working in the mines for 12 hours. He's studying to be a priest at this point, I think. And he's still finding time to put on plays because it's so important that this act of expressing and enjoying and being with friends and finding themselves through culture is is just as important as like the bare survival and i think it really always reminds me of that quote is it the saint irenaeus quote the glory of god is man fully alive like you see in these people what it means to be fully alive that they don't have to be monomaniacal about the resistance to the nazis and just have only having an interest in that because everything that they do which is through the the lens of god is in some ways an act of resistance to find true joy friendship and faith under oppression that in itself is is the resistance and then it it manifests itself in a way of serving this is a quote from pope francis on the 500th anniversary of the birth of teresa of avila he says The gospel is not a bag of lead, which one drags around arduously, but a font of joy which fills the heart with God and impels it to serve one's brothers and sisters. Yeah, it's something something I think we can forget very much, that there is a tendency to see saints and people like that as being kind of very sombre, serious people. And yet, I don't know, if you've ever visited a a religious convent or anything like that, you tend to find them just kind of enjoying themselves an awful lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, at times I've been in them and thought, you get any work done at all? They're just <laughs> having, you know, so much fun there. And it's, um, I don't think it's something that kind of the popular picture really kind of grasps, but it's, um, no, it's very true. There's something joyful and freeing about this kind of thing. Yeah, I think the film gets that across really well. There's a Stephen Gray Danis review of it, which makes a really good point. He says, Sophie Shaw is one of a very few films that accomplishes one of the rarest and most valuable cinematic achievements. It makes heroic goodness not just admirable, but attractive and interesting. How many films do this? One may admire and respect Dreyer's Joan of Arc, but how much would one enjoy being her friend? There are exceptions to the rule. Paul Schofield's Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons is one. Sophie Shaw is another. Though she is articulate and confident, there is nothing shrill or fanatical about her. She is not simply good and brave, though how good and brave she is. 
She is an ordinary university student, a biology major, an intellectual who enjoys music and philosophy. Her Wikipedia page also lists art, literature, theology, hiking, skiing and swimming among her interests and those of her friends. She is no social discontent or misfit. Her exceptional heroism has nothing to do with psychological needs on her part and everything to do with the pathologies of the world in which she lives. It's funny, it reminds me of, to lighten the tone enormously, we think that's okay, when BBC did the TV series of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's book Good Omens, where the two main characters are a demon and an angel. And Michael Sheen, who played the angel, was interviewed not long afterwards. And he, he gets to talk about the challenge of the role was to play somebody who was profoundly good and utterly motivated by love. And he, what he was saying is that there's a real cliche among actors that they like to play the villains because that's fun and it's, it's something interesting to do and stuff like that. And he says, there's something very wrong with us if we cannot see that goodness is interesting, if we cannot make goodness interesting. And the film gets this across, is that she's a genuinely good person and she's interesting and she's fun. Goodness is attractive in that case. And she's no weirdo. She's just a very normal, normal person. Yeah, absolutely. I love that that she's so motivated by, in some ways, it's not even by outrage. It's something deeper, which is just conscience. That like, there's a there's a sort of strength within her that is just, I can't do things that are, are against my conscience. And I think that comes across a lot more strongly. I think in some ways, it's interesting to to think about it in the context of what we're currently in. I know there's so many discussions about what we as Catholics and Christians should be doing in quarantine, what the church and the churches should be doing, what we as society should be doing. And I think the mistake is to place one context on top of another and say that these two things are the same. I think what's important about the White Rose is that they act with a real disregard for their own self-interest, but with a huge regard of the interests of others, for which m- many of whom they have no real need to step out of their way for. You know, clearly there were many people across their country that knew that the prejudice against the Jews was wrong, but it didn't impact them personally. And so they could just let it slide. And the same with, you were saying that they were quite moved by the the sermon on euthanasia. I believe I read that their mother's friend had been working in a children's hospital and had reported the mentally ill children being taken away. And again, that word that you were saying, the himmel, that they were that they were going to the sky, that they were going to heaven. And so these kids were sent off on a bus singing because they thought, we're going to a great place, we're going to heaven, and, and they were going to their deaths. And the Shoals were completely outraged by this as a, as a family. And so I think bravery only makes sense when it's in the context of sacrificing yourself to others. And I think that's really worth remembering. And I think it's been really interesting at the moment to see how people really wish that they were fighting a different kind of fight. I think all of the language about pandemics being like a battle and like a war is really kind of interesting. And I know in some ways it's just a shorthand of people trying to get a message across. But it doesn't fit and they're not the same thing. And I, it brings me back, like I said, I always quote Screwtape, but it does bring me back to that bit in Screwtape where he talks about how the most important thing is, uh, from the devil's perspective, is to keep our minds off what the cross that we are being asked to carry actually is. And it's not the thing that is coming down the line, but the present thing that is right in front of us, the present burden. The, the quote is, your patient will of course, have picked up on the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. 
What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has been actually dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, thy will be done, and for the daily task of bearing this that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's true. One of the real challenges is, as you say, to, to live and to struggle and whatever it takes in the present moment. That's definitely key. I mean, it, it's funny when you talk about the battle imagery, there's an old cliche that generals tend, and politicians tend to fight the last war. And that's part of what goes on, that language tends to fossilize, language around struggle tends to fossilize. I mean, even if you think of something like, say, World War One, and we talk about the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of the Somme is not like any battle in history until about a year earlier. Battles before that were relatively short. They're fought over a few hours or a couple of days. And really what you're looking at in World War One are giant sieges that go on forever. And yet you use the language that you used to have for these things. There's mm-hmm. an astonishing book that everybody should read. I push it on people called The Great War in Modern Memory. And it talks about how we do this. And... Yeah, you see it happening nowadays where people are using the language of, of warfare to talk about the, 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 the issue with the coronavirus. People try and talk about the 1918 Spanish flu, but we're really struggling because that's not part of our cultural memory. We've kind of, all of us have kind of collectively just pushed that aside. You know, whether it's between World War One and the Roaring Twenties or whether it's going on at the same time as our war of independence we just don't talk about it you know it's just gone and yet we tend to kind of focus the language of struggles in the past and facing off potential threats in the future without actually looking at what's right under their under our noses and i suppose that's the, one of the key things with the shawls with the others they they see this the, the lads in particular as i said you know, they're medical students they go out in their particular summer holidays are spent serving on the eastern front as medics and they see horrors there so if there's any doubt about what's going on they're just looking at them and they can see full well that they are living in an abomination and i mean you mentioned conscience there being kind of key to the equation which is is partly about doing the right thing and partly about calling things by their real names you know having the the honesty and the perception to do that sophie in particular but actually the whole group one way or another winds up being hugely influenced by newman on this one we, we first hear of this in it's in 1941 at one point and she herself and fritz go into this bookshop it's run by a one-time benedictine novice a guy called joseph reek and this seems to have been how she was introduced to newman's writings you know she she thrusts him on other friends of hers does a one of her friends suzanne herzl says you know Sophie one time handed her this Newman book and says, you don't know him? There's a wonderful world awaiting you there. So it becomes very, very influenced by this. But what really takes it off for all of them is, I mentioned Muth earlier, Karl Muth, who had had the kind of the, the magazine back in the day and so forth, and the, the kind of the artists and intellectuals he gathered around him. Well, one of these is a guy called Theodore Hecker. Uh, Hecker 63 at the time and is probably the single most important person in Germany when it comes to disseminating the ideas of Newman. He's a guy who, he'd encountered Newman's writings three years later. He writes to the Birmingham Oratory asking for permission to translate Newman's grammar of assent into, into German. He does so over the next 10 months, becomes a Catholic, and then devotes the rest of his life to basically pushing Newman on people and promoting Newman's ideas. This is usually influential on both Hans and Sophie. Um, Hecker would read from his journal and stuff like that at these meetings around kind of Moose friends and Hans was in the meetings. 
And at one point, you know, he, he hears that Hecker saying, you know, since since 1933, as a nation, we've been on the wrong road, on the wrong ro- wrong side. Yet even now, there are a few among us who suspect what it means. And he says that the leadership of Germany today is consciously anti-Christian. It hates Christ, whom it does not name. So you see the beginnings of this spiritual resistance kind of kicking in there. And it becomes much, much more present when the White Rose is actually formed. You know, they, they might hear Hecker talking one day and then his thoughts appear in their their leaflets and their pamphlets that they hand out. One of my all-time favourite quotes from one of their leaflets is, we will not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The White Rose will not leave you in peace. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's again, it's kind of funny to think it's, it's, it's a handful of, you know, people in their early 20s who are out there doing this. There's a whole country of, you know, millions upon millions of people. And yet these are almost the only people who are saying it. You've got, obviously... Bonhoeffer and his connections with the, the group who plant the bomb and so forth. But other, and in fact, they do intersect on the day of the execution. I think Hans was actually meant to be meeting Bonhoeffer's brothers somewhere. But basically, the resistance is tiny. And yet, they do pitch themselves as kind of a national conscience that way. And the fact that Newman is such a, an influence on how we think about conscience nowadays as Catholics is huge influence on it, not just in the, the Second Vatican Council, but throughout. It, it's key to understanding where they're coming from. One of the the peculiar ones is that if you look at the, the, the leaflets that the White Rose do, the fourth leaflet, because the first four leaflets are all done in the space of basically a fortnight, really. The fourth leaflet is written the day after Hans and um, Alex Schmorrell had attended a meeting with Hecker. So the, they've met this Newman expert. And at this meeting, he's talking about the Antichrist. And in particular, he's talking about four sermons that Newman had given back in the day in Advent 1838 four sermons on the patristical idea of the Antichrist. And he believed that Newman's understanding of this was key to understanding what was going on around them. He and Hans fall out about this one, oddly enough. Hans is 100% convinced that Hitler is the Antichrist, whereas Hacker thinks, no, he's just one of them. There's lots of these, <laughs> lots of Antichrists. They're all forerunners of it. So it, it's actually worth taking a look at what's in the, the fourth pamphlet on this one, because it, it is very, very, I mean, we, I mean, you can quote it at length about every word that comes from Hitler's mouth is a lie. He says peace when he means war. He, when he uses the name of the Almighty, he means the power of evil, the fallen angel, Satan. That, I mean, it goes back to, you mentioned Lewis and the Screwtape Letters earlier. I always think of, um, I remember it hit me very strongly as a child when I read The Last Battle. And Aslan talks about how, you know, a good deed done in the name of Tash, the Calorman God, is really done for him. Whereas evil deeds done in the name of Aslan are really done in the name of Tash. It's the same kind of idea there. So, yeah, these are identifying that Hitler using the name of God, but actually meaning evil, meaning Satan when he does this. And they, they talk about this quite at length. And it's basically Hecker and therefore Newman's fingerprints running right through the document. And then saying, and it goes back to that conscience point, really. I ask you, it says, uh, well, it says, first of all, it says, man is free, to be sure, but without the true God, he is defenseless against the principle of evil. He is like a rudderless ship at the mercy of a storm, an infant without his mother, a cloud dissolving into thin air. I ask you as a Christian, wrestling for the preservation of your greatest treasure, whether you hesitate, whether you incline toward intrigue, calculation or procrastination in the hope that someone else will raise his arm in your defense. Has God not given you the strength, the will to fight? We must attack evil where it is strongest, and it is strongest in the power of Hitler. 
So it's 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 Newman's uh, homilies on the Antichrist channeled right through the circumstances of what's facing them at the time and in a very emphatic way. I suppose we better just to to round up the story of the shawls, just talk a little bit about how they got caught. Essentially, they had printed a huge number of leaflets. Sophie and Hans were distributing them in little piles outside the the doors of the lecture halls of their university. And it's that it's that last moment, that last twist of fate where they they were done and they were about to make their escape. And, and she says, we have a, a stack of these leaflets left. We can't let them go to waste. And so she throws them from the top of the staircase and, uh, and a janitor sees her do this and they, they both get arrested. And they're interrogated for a while and yeah. her and her brother don't give anyone up. They don't crack under pressure. Unfortunately, Hans had a um, letter on him, which he, I think he tried to eat and then they, they managed to get it off him, which had uh, one of their friends, Christopher Probst, his handwriting on it. And he was, uh, his, his wife had just get, given birth to their third child, but he was arrested. And as I understand, he was a, a Christian his whole life, but didn't know where to really kind of set up his camp. And so at the very end, he was baptized into the Catholic faith. So the three of them were executed together. And then I believe not long after that, the rest of were rounded up. But what's really striking and, and what the film captures really well, because the film just focuses on from them distributing the leaflets to their execution. It is, it's, it's called the final days and it really is just the final days. It doesn't give you any context before that. But it really shows how unnerved their investigators are even you said that their executioner they seem to disarm everyone that kind of comes in contact with them through their intelligence through their integrity through their willingness to accept the responsibility for themselves but also their resistance to implicating anybody else and so their final days are this great witness and it's it's a kind of amazing journey to go through with them and i would really recommend the film it's not obviously it ends with they're guillotined at the end and, and you you see the kind of lead up to that but it's not a particularly gruesome or gory film despite it being a World War II film, it, it, it's just life in, in Munich at the time, but it's a very powerful, and again, like I said, disarming film because it, it is both so horrifying and scary. But the, one of the things I liked about it is, is that they didn't make the Nazis look completely unreasonable. Like They give you their thinking. And one of the things that they keep stressing is that like the boys have all become medics and whatnot off the coin of the, the German government. They're going to university and so is Sophie because the German government has allowed and paid for them to do so. So there's this kind of sense of ingratitude. And it's a really interesting look at how they could demonize and other these people who were just speaking through their conscience. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that's, that sums it up pretty well. It, it is striking that uh, as a film that, yes, you do see the humanity in everybody in it, really. Even the kind of the prosecutor, kind of the judge, rather, in a court case, who looks about as maniacal as you're going to get of anybody in the film. And even him, they're, they're, they are quite clearly unnerved by the confidence, by the maturity, and by the simple, the, the intelligence and the goodness of these people who are against them. Because I think after a while, if you become so convinced of how right you are, it becomes impossible to understand how anybody can oppose you. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the things going on there. I mean, they were used to their opponents being, if they had to, if they had any, they'd be Poles or Jews or people who were being victims of them, or they were they were communists and people who would spout marks at them and stuff like that. They, they, you were used to that. They were not used to people who were steeped in German culture and these kind of very eloquent 
um, articulate, intelligent, decent, freshly scrubbed young people. That just wasn't what they were expecting at all. And yeah, you, you're right about Christoph Probst is arrested as well. I mean, in, in fairness, once they had one member of the group, it wasn't going to take them long to get the rest. You know, they were making a big effort to do this. And it's a matter of finding out who, well, who are their friends, you know, when you kind of you round them up. The, the Gestapo had thought they were a much bigger group than they were. I think they were quite surprised at the size of it. But yes, Christoph Probst, whose background, I mean, he's, there's no point getting to him now. All of them have their own stories. This is the thing. It's, it's, I mean, I think for some reason, it's simplicity as much as anything that we focus on the, the, the Shaw siblings and, and or even Sophie herself. Every single one of these has a remarkable story. But yeah, Christoph Probst, as you say, um, he requested baptism and was baptized, received into the Catholic Church on the same day he was executed. You would think there's actually a pretty clear case for his cause as well. You know, he's, you know, in that, in, in that situation. And as I said, Willy yeah. Graf, uh, he was executed in October, so several months later. So basically, Hans, Sophie and Christoph straight away, Alexander Schmorl and Kurt Huber a few months later in July, and then Willy Graf uh, a few months later again in October. But, you know, other, I mean, others around them told her story. People like Inga, the, another one of the, the sisters in the, in the family, talked enormously about them. In some ways, she's almost like, I don't want to say she's the early hagiographer of the group, but she kind of is in a way. But um, the documents support what she says. You know, it's um, there's a, a wonderful book, as I said, I mentioned, I got this not too long ago, called At the Heart of the White Rose. And it's, it's letters and diaries of Hans and Sophie Scholl. And it's just going straight into their own thoughts, their own words, whether to each other, whether to people like Fritz, or whether just putting them down on paper and there's nobody but them and God who sees them. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a very, very personal look at what they were doing and how they were motivated. And I don't know, they're, yeah. they're inspiration. It's all really they're remarkable individuals. I know. There's one last quote that I love where Sophie says, the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who don't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. If you don't make any noise, the bogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion, because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe? From what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And little candles burn themselves out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. I mean, that's a longer and very grander way, in a way, of that quote that... In a paraphrase, it's regularly attributed to Edmund Burke. You know, the all that's necessary for, for evil to thrive is for good people to say nothing. But it, it, it reminds me very much of, I don't know if you've ever read any Primo Levi at all, but in his account of his time in Auschwitz, if this is a man, uh, editions of it often have kind of a Q&A at the back of it about this kind of Italian Jew who spent time there in the, in the camps. And one of the things he says is that monsters are actually very few. There are very few absolutely terrible people out there and they're not the problem the problem are the functionaries the people who go around them and, and enable them or won't stand in their way when they should won't have the conscience to stand up to and basically allow monsters to be monsters for the sake of a quiet life that's that's really yeah. the bigger threat i think she gets it right there as well when she's saying that most people are just kind of keeping their heads down and by keeping their heads down all kinds of horrors are allowed um at some point, you have to kind of put your hand up and say, stop. Yeah, that, that it really is encapsulated by that quote she has. I think it's at her trial when she said, 
somebody had to make a start you know just that somebody had to do something and, and I guess it falls to me and actually in the the previous quote that I read there's another bit where she says those for whom freedom honor truth and principles are only literature and I think that's so important to in some ways as an advocate for literature that if you find them in literature then they have to start applying out to the real world and it's not that good people only exist in books but that good people are inspired by the people that exist in books yeah no very much so i think that's pretty much it thanks so much for coming on i think the only thing i have left is to ask you what you've been enjoying at the moment in your long quarantine or lockdown well i I finished middlemarch that's what i was reading last time i was talking to you that took me a very long time, but I, I'm looking forward to reading it again. That took a while for the threads to come together for me and to see quite what, what George Eliot was doing in the book. And now that I know that, when I reread it, whenever that will be, <laughs> I'll be prepared. Um, so since then, um, I've been reading The Lord of the Rings for my first time since I was about 15, which wasn't yesterday, basically. It, it'll be my third time reading it. I read it as a child when I was basically nine. I it took three stints of borrowing it from Ballyvermont Library. Once The Lord of the Rings, and then I had to reserve it to get that. And then once managing to reserve The Two Towers, and then finally managing to reserve The Lord of the Rings. So it took a long time. But I read it when I was nine. I read it when I was 15 or 14. And then for many years now, I've been saying, I want to read this again. I'm sure it will be a different book because I'm a different person. And also I'm determined mm-hmm. not to skip the songs this time. To my delight. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm halfway through, just over halfway through it now. Sam and, and Frodo have kind of teamed up with, with with Gollum, and they're making their way towards towards Mordor at the moment. And it's yeah, it's it's remarkable coming back to it. Part of me had a feeling it was going to be leaden. I, I just had something in my head that this was going to be a very because of Tolkien with his influence of epic poetry and kind of old English stuff and all that. And there is a heaviness to it, but actually. It's uh, it's almost a seductive heaviness in its way. It leads you into it and it just becomes, that's the world you're in. I'm thinking about it a lot more and, and finding it, you know, if you're looking at people who are engaged in kind of doomed acts of resistance, you know, we're continuing the theme here in a way. So I'm delighted. I always feel like I, I could be on the verge of a, a Lord of the Rings reread, but then I feel like there's so many books that I haven't read yet that I need to focus on them first but I always want to be reading Lord of the Rings essentially. <laughs> well that was that was my reason for for so long for not reading it. I thought how can I read this again when mm-hmm. I haven't read Middlemarch which has been glaring on me on the shelf for a very long time. You know, it's that kind of approach. Yeah. There are things I should read. But I said no, look, once I once I finish Middlemarch I'll give this a go. And um yeah, no, I've been I've been been loving it. It's really it's really very special. I'm tentatively kind of thinking at some point this year, I would probably brave the Silmarillion, um, which I tried and put down very quickly in my teens. I've done that a couple of times myself, but a bit like you, I'm like, this is the perfect summer to read it the full way through. I've read I've read chunks of it, but I haven't read it the full way through. So hopefully this summer is the moment. But a bit like you for myself, I decided I had to read a book that everyone assumed I had read, so it was terrible that I hadn't. And it was one that you mentioned actually to me earlier, which is The Wind in the Willows. I'd never read it. And Maria mentioned it in our springing into the season. And for the sake of the podcast, I just kind of nodded and and, and let her talk about it, but I hadn't actually read it. So I was feeling a bit of a fraud. So I finally got the audiobook for it, which is read by someone called Michael Horton, who I believe was the voice of Badger in the TV show. And I will say the audiobook is 
excellent and I adored it. And so I thought it's great to see so many following books put into their context because of it. I've been doing a good bit of gardening. I'm, I'm staying with my parents in the, in the countryside. So I've been doing a lot of gardening and I got to the chapter where Mole passes his old home essentially and gets very upset about it and misses it and he sort of sits down and has a bit of a cry and I was honestly so moved by it I was in in among the rose bushes doing some weeding and I almost had tears on my face and I thought what a, what a strange thing if someone came upon me at this moment with like tears in my eyes thinking about a mole and <laughs> doing some weeding. It's a, it's a very strange book in some ways there's kind of I don't know I can't imagine pitching that to an to a publisher you know okay. I mean most of it you're kind of going along about I mean, I don't know where you are in it that way. I couldn't work it out. But there's one particular scene. There's a chapter called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it's doing. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's straight out of J.M. Barry or something like that, or Charles Kingsley, or I don't know. It's whatever disbelief you need to suspend with these adventures of mole and rat and badger and toad and any number of weasels. That takes it up another notch. It's funny to think it's, it came out in the same year as The Man Who Was Thursday and The Secret Agent, Conrad's book. So uh, a strange year for fiction, that. Definitely, definitely. There's a, certainly a dreamlike quality to The Man Who Was Thursday that would fit in that chapter you were talking about. Well, thank you so much for joining. The usual request to our lovely listeners to rate and subscribe and share and chat away to us online. And if you want to give your, your handles, Greg... Oh, well, I'm on Twitter as Greg Daly, I see, and also as Thirsty Gargoyle. So if you want to take a look or follow either of those, you might be amused, you might be infuriated, you might just be bored. But um, give it a go anyway. No, you're, you're definitely a great follow on Twitter. And other than that, thanks so much for listening. We hope you're all keeping well and we're keeping you in the prayers. And please, God, we'll see um, happier horizons soon. Indeed. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.